You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. I am Francis D. Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post, and I'm delighted now to welcome Maria Shriver, Sharon Malone, and Lisa Moscone to talk to us about menopause and the brain. A very warm welcome, Maria Shriver, Dr. Maloney, and Dr. Moscone. Thank you. Thank you. We're very pleased to have you. Thank you. So I wanted to start, Maria, with you. You had some news yesterday. You were at the White House um, announcing a new initiative. Tell us what that was all about and what you expect the impact to be. Well, that was a game-changing day, I believe, for women's health in general. It was the first ever presidential initiative on women's health research in our history. And what it does is it charges the federal government for the next 45 days to look at where we're spending money on women's health, where we could do better, where the gaps and the holes are. And it also notifies that the branches of government need to work holistically. Uh, In 45 days, we'll look at what they came back with. And then I hope in the State of the Union, the president will talk about the plans moving forward. But the fact is that NIH only spends about 10.8% of its federal budget on women's health. We're 50% of the population, so that figure, in my mind, and I think in every woman's mind, is inexcusable. We need to raise that. We need to understand women's health spans. We need Mm -hmm. to understand what's happening in their bodies from birth all the way through old age. We need the data so that women who are my age, when they go into the doctor, they can get answers as opposed to we don't knows. And our hope is that this will change the trajectory of women's lives. Such a good point. And Sharon, it brings me one to, one to you. Um, women have historically been left out of research. And even during the pandemic, during those clinical vaccine trials, pregnant women were omitted from the vaccine trials. How did we get here? And why is the White House, in your view, now paying attention, apart from Maria being the leader? (laughs) You know, it's an interesting story of how we got here, because I think particularly for women in menopause, the narrative was different. And I practiced for 10 years before this infamous study, the Women's Health Initiative, was announced in 2001. Um, We were actually taught that Menopause was a time of life that women were at risk for certain uh, conditions, primarily cardiovascular disease, in addition to all the symptoms that women, uh, that you normally associate with menopause, like hot flashes. But we actually prescribed hormone therapy for disease prevention, which was cardiovascular disease. And it was only when that study was introduced, well, well, actually when it was stopped in 2002, that hormones became the the enemy. And unfortunately, in those 21 years since that study was actually stopped, and it was a study done by the NIH, which is why I think it's so important that the NIH come back and readdress this, is that in those 21 years, an entire generation of women were disadvantaged because they they thought of hormone therapy as the enemy, and an entire generation of physicians also did not get the education that they needed to be able to advise women in midlife. So, Lisa, you're a neuroscientist. You know more than probably anybody about menopause in the brain. What got you into that field of work? How did you enter that? I I entered the field of menopause a little bit in in a slightly unusual way. I I was studying Alzheimer's disease. I specialize in Alzheimer's prevention, and I do specialize in women's brain health, which, let me tell you, I don't have a lot of competition (laughs) in this one. 
Uh, we were working with Maria and the Women's Alzheimer's Movement and the research is NIH funded. And we were trying to reconceptualize Alzheimer's disease, not as a disease of old age, but as a disease of midlife. Alzheimer's disease is a disease of midlife with symptoms that emerge and manifest in old age. And what we have shown is that that timeline is a little bit different for women than for men as in the signs of Alzheimer's disease, the negative changes that occur in the brain can be detected earlier on in life for women. So we can do brain scans to try and find these changes that tend to coincide with the menopause transition. So, so that's why we're not looking at menopause as a neurologically active state right. that may increase a woman's risk of Alzheimer's. Marit, you have daughters, right. and I'm wondering, as this research emerges, how their thought about menopause may have changed from conversations when you had years ago, and how, how they talk to their peers about it. Well, I think I didn't have any conversations right. with my mother about menopause. Right. So there's a sea change. And now of, they I have think, the menopause mother. <laughs> right, yeah. So I think they, they now I think feel like they know a lot about this subject. <laughs> but I think what's important is to step back and realize um, that this is a very new conversation. Right. Women's brain health, uh, menopause, women's uh, health period is new, and uh, we're decades and decades behind when it comes to the research, when it comes to the narrative around our lives. So this is an urgent uh, political issue. Right. It's a human rights issue. It's an economic issue. Women drop out of the workforce uh, due to menopause, due to depression, due to anxiety, due to all kinds of things that we don't know why they have that, right. why they're experiencing this. When I got involved in Alzheimer's, because my dad had Alzheimer's, everybody said it was just a disease of old age. There was right. nothing you could do. And that women only got it more because we lived longer. That's all changed. And, and we've changed the narrative on Alzheimer's. We put women front and center. We've said we have to study women now at a younger age to determine what's happening in midlife and beyond. We can't tell you. And all of these things depend on research, which we don't have. So that takes me again, Sharon, to you. You mentioned um, the change thinking around estrogen. But younger women coming into menopause, are they thinking about hormone replacement therapy differently than maybe 10, you know, what's the conversation you're seeing? Because you, you know, practice. we're honestly changing the conversation. Huh. And I think for the women of my generation, many of them have missed out because they, again, have these misperceptions right. about hormone therapy. Right. The younger generation, and I say these Gen Xers and millennials, they are not buying into this notion that we should just in, you know, we should become invisible as we age. And there are real, there's real scientific data about hormone therapy that has been there in front of our eyes forever, and we've ignored. And that's the unfortunate thing, because when I say um, what this study did, mm -hmm. the Women's Health Initiative, it really took the most effective solution that we had, not only for the symptoms of menopause, but as we're coming to find out, not only that we're finding that the data is very convincing as far as cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis. And what we cannot um, really ignore is also not only the fact that as women age, but as women of color, we are also affected differently, and we are more at risk for the conditions such as Alzheimer's and heart disease. Why? 
What's well, you know, isn't that a question right. that, you know, the, come, this the, question comes up the whole time. The amazing thing to me is that even during, you know, as I started sort of delving more into menopause in the past three years, I mean, you know, I was reading Lisa's book. I did not realize that two thirds of the women, two thirds of the people with Alzheimer's are women. I had no idea. I did not know that black women have twice the risk of developing Alzheimer's as white women. Those were things that were knowable. And right. I think what is unconscionable to me is that we knew that that was the case, but no one has bothered to ask the question as to why. And more importantly, what are we going to do about it? And what it looks like, because I'd love to ask Lisa now about what happens to a brain right. before and after menopause and what you can actually visualize. Maybe you could help us think through that. I'm happy to. So um, we have some slides. And um, we have, that yes, okay, good. Okay. So I, I see that as a brain. brain imaging. So my, my background is in neuroscience and nuclear medicine, which is a branch of radiology. And this is the kind of images that I, um, can we go back one second? With this, if not, it doesn't matter. But, so these are brain scans. They're called positron emission tomography scans. If you can just stay on this light for one second, I just want to tell you how to read this image. So this is a very healthy looking brain. And we're looking at brain energy levels of the way that the brain takes up glucose, a simple sugar, to make energy. And this is the way you want your brain to look like when you're in your 40s. Like this woman was when we first took her brain scan. You want to have a lot of red all around the brain, inside the brain, the little butterfly-shaped structure in the middle. There is blue, which is fine, it's fluid. There has to be fluid inside a healthy brain. But you really want to have high brain energy levels, so a lot of red. And now, if we can start the animation, this is what happened to this specific brain as this woman went from before menopause to after menopause. And I think that the change is quite clear, right? The red turns yellow, the yellow turns green. Right. So this is a drop in brain energy levels, which at least in our studies with hundreds of women, we have estimated to be about 20, 30%. Now, what does that mean? Is the brain getting sick? No, the brain is going through a transition. So menopause is a neurologically active state. It changes your brain as surely as it changes your ovaries. But the brain connection has been widely underestimated in medicine, I would say. And these changes could potentially explain the symptoms of menopause that Sharon was talking about. So when women say they're having half flashes, night sweats, but also insomnia, depression, anxiety, brain fog, everybody dreads the brain fog, the memory lapses, those are signs of menopause, they have nothing to do with your ovaries. They start in your brain. Huh. Those are signs that your brain is changing because of menopause. And what's really important, can I just say, yeah. what's really important is that, you know, millions of women go to their doctor in right. midlife with these symptoms and they're put on SSRIs. Right. Right. Or their doctors don't associate these symptoms with being perimenopausal, right? right? So this is a, a conversation that doctors need to be brought into, right. uh, that women need to understand that menopause is not just a bodily change, right? that it's not just about losing or getting right. intermittent periods, it's about what's going on in your brain. Which makes me ask Sharon, where does estrogen fit into this? Do we have any clue about the, the impact? 
estrogen was having on those incredible slides we saw. We actually have a lot of information about estrogen because contrary to popular belief, estrogen is not new. We have known about estrogen. <laughs> once again, once again. <laughs> you know, we, have, we have used it in some form or fashion. Mm consistently for the past 80 years. And you know, the Premarin, which was the drug that was used uh, in the large study, was patented in 1942. And so we have probably more data about estrogen than probably any other drug that's been in continuous use. Wow. Um, so what we, what we know is that estrogen is the most effective treatment for those symptoms of menopause, right. the hot flashes, the mood swings, the sleeplessness. But what we have found is that not only is it just the short-term benefit, but there is a long-term. And we have known, again, that it decreases the risk of osteoporosis. We have, we have found that treating a hot flash, which mm. you know, off, you know, is often used as sort of a comical relief um, for women in menopause, treating hot flashes actually improves your brain health. Because what we have found is that women who um, have hot flashes are also more at risk for cardiovascular disease and they have more changes in their brains which are indicative, that could be indicative of, uh, of Alzheimer's. So the estrogen story is not new. Unfortunately, it has been just sort right. of tucked away for yeah. a while and what we're trying to do is to get people to understand that we don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel Right. to address some of these issues because we have known and we have dealt with these medications for many, many, many decades. So let me take on another question with you, Maria. Alzheimer's um, has always been sort of thought of as an old person's disease. Mm. You're reversing that. What do we know about the prevalence and uh, predictions for it among younger women? What do we understand about well, that? We don't. We don't know, and that's why we're trying to fund research. We don't know kind of about women's health spans, period. We don't know why women are 80% of the autoimmune diseases. We don't know why women are getting lung cancer at double right. the rate of men. We don't know, we don't know, we don't know. So you've been so a trailblazer the, in this well, research. Well, the women's Alzheimer's movement has been right. trailblazing in funding research into women to right. try to understand why women are two-thirds of those with Alzheimer's. As I said, when I started as an advocate and activist in this space, women weren't even part of the picture. Lifestyle wasn't even mentioned. Uh, menopause wasn't even in the picture. So funding research uh, that into women is a huge game changer that happens across the field. So I think breast cancer has done a great job of funding research, but there are many things that happen in a woman's life in addition to breast cancer, right? And we're trying right. to broaden the conversation that there are women you know, in puberty, in midlife, and beyond, right? And so what's very important is that women in midlife stay in touch with their doctor. Doctor after doctor says, we lose track of women mm. when they're like 40 to 65. And that is the really important period of a woman's life to intervene, to talk about hormones, to talk about symptoms of perimenopause, to talk about osteoporosis, to talk about the things that happen to women in midlife that also will set her up to age well. Lisa, you yeah. know about the brain not only in midlife but also in adolescence. Mm. And I'd love to understand a little bit more about what you're seeing and understanding that informs this research based on the brain at adolescence and then during menopause. Are you seeing key differences there? 
Yes, and my, my daughter is eight, and she can talk to you about puberty and menopause like all day long, and about how they change the <laughs> I brain. love these she new conversations. That we're talking about the younger generation. You have to start young. So, you have to start young. <laughs> we started when she was four, and she was seven tantrums, so yes. Um, there's, a, there's a system that connects the brain with the ovaries that we are born with. The system is called the neuroendocrine system, so it connects the neural part of your brain neural system with the endocrine system, the hormonal system. This system gets activated during mm -hmm. puberty, during adolescence, and it gets deactivated after menopause. And it's really this switching, this on and off switch that creates a bit of a remodeling inside the brain. And I, we like to say that menopause is like a renovation project on the brain. And it is not all negative. So we have the symptoms that we're familiar with. We have some medical risks that can come up. But just like puberty and also like pregnancy, these are transition states that also bring a lot of resilience in new mental and neurological skills. And something that we really like to underline is that women after menopause have exceptional empathy and mm -hmm. cognitive mastery and emotional mastery, which is a very specific ability to turn down your reactions to negative stimuli. So if something so, bad happens to you after menopause, you don't care as much. <laughs> you, know? you deal with that a lot better. And it's, <laughs> so, it's so important. So Sharon, given, given this, why is the narrative around menopause so doom and gloom? <laughs> well, you know, that is, the, that is a narrative that I think has um, taken hold by this whole notion that as women, be, as we age, we become more invisible. Who cares what happens to you after menopause? Um, I think that, thank goodness, you know, due to women like Maria Shriver, Michelle Obama, the, you know, there are so many women out there who are showing that menopause and the menopausal phase of life, of which women will spend a third of their lives if they're lucky, is a time of great joy and productivity. I mean, just as you said, you know, you don't, there are a lot of things you don't care about when you're 60 <laughs> that you cared about when you were 40. And we have got to really sort of, I say, almost say rebrand menopause because there are a lot of us that are out there who are postmenopausal. And I think that there's a, this is a phase of life when we've never been wiser We've never been, we've never had more experience in life. And to be able to impart that and to not sort of shrink into the background is really our goal. And I think that the more people that fess up to this and actually come out and embrace it, then I think that women can accept it for what it is, which is a wonderful phase of life. So last question that I want to ask each of you. We have a new woman, the 17th director of the National Institutes of Health Yay. is a woman. And Maria, you've taken a leadership role, but what does it mean to you to have a woman taking on that very powerful role in scientific research in this country? Well, she was in the Oval Office yesterday with us for the signing of this memorandum, and I hope that she will put, just like Bernadette Healy did before her, put women at the center. Um, obviously, there is a lot of institutes at NIH, but I'm gunning for an institute that has women's name on the door. I'm gunning for an institute that is able to grant uh, in the billions uh, to look at women's health span. And I just want to say that menopause, if you're lucky enough to go through it, which means you're alive, right, uh, and age into your 60s and 70s or 80s, to have a good 60s, 70s, and 80s, you need to be healthy. Mm. And too many women in this country don't have access 
to health care. They don't have access to maternity wards. They don't have access to what they need uh, in order to be healthy in their 60s, their 70s, and their 80s. And this is critical. Prevention, good health, should not be something for the 1%. It should be available and accessible and affordable to all. And therefore, we need research. We need young women and young doctors and researchers coming up that prioritize or at least equalize mm -hmm. women's health and don't treat women like little men. Mm -hmm. uh, that focus. Another phrase for that. It's not yeah. quite as polite but as it's, one it's, and, and we were saying yesterday, women are sick in this country and they're tired. And they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Right. And <laughs> women are parenting, they're providing, they're caretaking, they're caregiving. And you need your health and your strength to do all of that. Thank and you. you need to start at a very young age so that you can get to your 60s and 70s and 80 and become an advocate and an activist for other women. An advocate and an activist. Thank you. And I'd, I'd love to hear the view from two scientists there. We're just a, a minute of each of you, Sharon, or a little bit less. Tell me, what does that women's leadership mean for you as you've seen people coming up through your labs? Are they inspired? I, I think it's important because empathy matters, you know, and it matters because it matters to us personally. You know, I think we need more, um, we need more diversity in the researchers because you f will find things interesting that honestly will affect you. And I think that there's no coincidence that the Women's Health Initiative, the same study that we talk a lot about, was actually initiated during the time of the first female director of the NIH, Bernadine Healy in 1991. Now, she didn't get a chance to see it through, but her intentions were good. It was the first time that there had ever been a study of that magnitude into the health of women in postmenopausal women. So yes, so I am very encouraged by this because I think that she will bring a perspective to the NIH that has been absent. Mm -hmm. And I think that we also have the grassroots support now mm -hmm. from women who now understand how we have been ill-served in the past 20 years and for time immemorial. And so I'm, I'm, I think of this as a very optimistic time, and I think Maria is exactly right. We have got to make sure that all women have access to the information, and it shouldn't be just for the few. And you both reminded me that I misspoke in calling her the first female director, but she's the 17th and a very key woman. Lisa, right at the beginning, you were talking about essentially female mentorship. So what does it mean for you as you see younger scientists coming along to have this great woman leader in Washington? It uh, gives me hope. As a scientist, it's really hard to get funded to do this kind of research. And I think it's important to realize that women are half of the population. All women, God willing, will go through menopause. All women have brains. And three out of every four women <laughs> experience neurological changes during menopause. But menopause research receives less than 0.08% or the entire budget, the federal budget for healthcare. So I'm hoping that this changes. I'm hoping that, that scientists will be allowed to do research on women's brains and menopause, because right now we really have very little incentives. Let's Can put it I that way. just end by saying I've never had so much fun before talking about menopause. <laughs> and I want to thank you, Maria, Sharon, and Lisa for joining us here on stage. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. 
Welcome. Thank you all for being here, both in person and online at the Global Women's Summit. My name is Lana Wong, and I'm a founding member of the Diverse Women Moderators Bureau, Moderate the Panel. So in this session, we'll be discussing weathering the caregiving tsunami, and I am honored to share the stage with one of Washingtonian Magazine's 2023 Most Powerful Women in DC, Claire Casey, the president of the AARP Foundation, which is AARP's largest charitable affiliate that is dedicated to creating and advancing effective solutions to reduce poverty for, for and with older adults. So welcome, Claire. Thank you. So did you all know that people, ad adults 65 and over, are the world's fastest growing demographic? By 2050, one in six people will be over 65. So that's nearly two billion people. And here in the US, researchers have found that people who leave the workforce to care for loved ones stand to lose more than $300,000 in lifetime income and benefits. And so as you can imagine, this mostly and disproportionately impacts women. So uh, with the massive demographic shifts ahead and the rapidly aging population, we're really at risk of unwinding and reversing decades of progress that we've made towards gender equality. And uh, really, we are indeed facing a caregiving tsunami. So Claire, let's really dig into this. Uh, one more stat, in 10 years, adults 65 and over are going to outnumber children under 18 for the first time. And then at the same time, the share of available family caregivers is going to shrink, while the number of older adults who actually need care is going to be uh, by a large, much larger number. So what do you see coming ahead as this demand for family caregivers increases? Yeah, thanks, Lana. Um, I want to give a little bit more context because the situation is particularly extreme in the US. Longevity is this incredible boon, um, and we're benefiting from it globally. In the US, we have, in addition to longevity, the baby boom generation, and it is a bulge generation. Um, and so we are today living through a really unprecedented moment um, where we're seeing demographic change on a scale and at a speed that we've never seen before. The first baby boomer turned 65 in 2011. The last baby boomer will turn 65 in 2030. So we're a little over halfway through. In 2020, the US government did their census and they looked at the growth of the 65 plus population over just the decade prior. So the, you know, the nine years that the baby boom was entering it in one more year. And this, the share of Americans 65 and older as a percentage of our total population had grown in a decade by 30%. And it's because of that, um, and we're just halfway through, right? That was, that was the midway point. Um, because of that, I feel really comfortable saying that everyone sitting in this room is going to be a caregiver. Some of you probably already are a caregiver. Um, and I think we can look at the future and say, well, no, I'll, I'll hire someone. There are less than 5 million people today in America in the caregiving workforce. There are 4.8 million people. That's every home health aid, every nursing home aid, every person working in assisted living facilities. All of them combined is 4.8 million caregivers. There are already 53 million family caregivers in this country, and that is only gonna grow. 60% of them are women. 
And I, I'm going to do a little shout out to millennial men. That is the only generation that caregiving is split fairly evenly. So when you consider that for, for Gen X, for boomers, um, the, the, the burden on women is actually far larger than that 60%. So just like you said, we have the potential to unwind decades of progress in gender equity in the workforce in just a few years, um, unless, we change, unless we change course. Wow, yeah. Well, given what you said, that women are taking on this disproportionate amount of the family caregiving, what does that really mean for women in the workforce and also their long-term financial security? Yeah, um, it has a huge impact on their working lives. The average caregiver in this country is doing about 20 hours of caregiving in a given week. So imagine what that would be like for you in addition to your full-time job. Um, so it does erode in some way their ability to contribute at work. A lot of people are doing a lot more than the, that 20 hours. Um, we see that women are nine times more likely than men to leave their jobs or to, to go down to part-time work. Um, and they're three times as likely than men to, to actually leave their jobs full-time to become a caregiver. So that is, as you said, hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost wages, benefits, contributions to Social Security, contributions to their savings, contributions to their long-term financial security and health. So it is, it is a problem that if we don't address, just gets bigger and bigger. And that comes on top of the fact that women are already starting behind. We're twice as likely to retire into poverty, um, we know that there's still a gender pay gap that's even more extreme for women of color. Um, the average Social Security payment for a man in this country is $18,000. Some people might be thinking that sounds really low, $18,000 a year. The average payment for a woman today is $14,000, which is below the official government poverty line. And that's today. That's still early days in this, in this trend. So we've got to do everything we can to shore up women in the workplace and give them pathways back to work. Great. Well, we're hearing all the kind of grim and challenging aspects of this, but what are the solutions? Give us some hope here. Yeah, there are solutions. Um, I, I feel very privileged to work at AARP. I'm brand new to AARP. I joined in January, and it's the first time I've been in a workplace that had normalized caregiving. So, and, and that's, I think, step one for all of us. I mean, this room is full of leaders online. I'm sure there are a lot of leaders out there. You've got to normalize caregiving in your workplace. It has to be an acceptable part of people's lives. Um, I think we've done that really well with ch children. It is men and women can show up at work as parents. Um, we haven't yet done that for a caregiver. We actually have caregiving lead. I got an email this morning from one of my direct reports just reminding you, Claire, I'm out today for planned caregiving leave. And that is a normal activity in our workplace. So that's, that's number one. Offering flexibility. So someone can do their job, but maybe they need a little bit more flexibility in terms of the hours. How do we accommodate that? How do we, if they do need to go to part-time, how do we accommodate that job sharing? There's all sorts of, and again, I think if we look to the flexibilities we've tried to give parents and extend that more broadly, um, there, there are solutions there to help people stay in work. And then the third is there are actually services that are emerging that you can provide your employees. Things like a call a nurse helpline. Anyone who's new to caregiving, really realizes that this is, this is some new and sometimes some scary stuff, and you don't necessarily know what to do. Um, so providing that, that, that support, a service that give, just 
makes available to them what resources are in your community um, that could support them to sort of to provide more of an ecosystem of support around the caregiver and enable them to continue to be productive and contribute in your workplace. And it pays off. You, you end up with a happier, more stable um, workforce that is retained and you're not seeking to retrain and recruit to fill really valued employees who just couldn't make it work because you were too inflexible or didn't provide the supports necessary. So that's kind of step one. Let's make it easier for caregivers to stay at work. But some people will have to leave work. Um, I know my uncle left his job as a trucker to care for my grandmother when she had dementia. She was able to stay in her home, but we didn't think it was safe for her to be there alone. Um, some people will have to leave work. How do we make sure that they aren't just cut off from that day of, of income? Um, and there are programs. There are programs all over the country. The VA, if you're, if you're caring for a vet, provides support. Um, most states have something called self-directed Medicaid. So if you are Medicaid eligible, you can apply to direct your caregiver payments to your family member. Every state does it differently. Um, there are geographic limits. Some states just have it in a couple counties. Um, so one thing ARP Foundation is doing is this year we're investing in an online resource center. So if you know anyone who's, who's going into caregiving, in a few months you'll be able to point them to this online resource that will help you figure out what's available in your state, what the process is. We can't make it not complicated. This, it's, it's complicated in every state in different ways, but at least providing them with a resource to help navigate those processes so they can keep some level of income, probably about $20 an hour, coming in um, and, and shore them up during this period that they're caregiving. That's great. And do you have a personal or a success story from the AARP Foundation work of helping people get back into the workforce? Right, because caregiving ends. Um, and we do. We have a wonderful, a wonderful individual. Um, we have so many women primarily, coming back into our programs, wanting to get back into the workforce, not having the tools, not having the, the comfort. Some of them haven't applied for a job in a decade or more because um, they were working stably before before this, they were pulled out of the workforce. So we have a woman named Jackie Johnson, who I think really personifies that group, represents that group. She was a, in a hospital for years in, in Illinois, um, working as a supervisor for environmental services. And then her mom got sick. She got chronic kidney disease and dementia. And Jackie had to leave her job and move back to Oklahoma. And for the next year and a half, she cared for her mother. Um, and they survived on her savings and contributions from family members. And then her mother passed away and she was ready to get back to work and she couldn't even get an interview. Um, and so she came into our Back to Work 50 Plus program and she, we, you know, bucked up a resume, showed her how to use LinkedIn because she never had to do that before, got her a coach and put her in a cohort of other older adults that are trying to get back into the workforce. Um, and she is now happily, she started as a temp and now she is a full-time employee of a psychiatric practice, so back into the healthcare sector. But they, folks can get back to work and we need to give them the pathways in. Fantastic, great. Well, we're short on time, but one last word. What's the call to action for all of us in this whole caregiving space? Yeah, I will just say that I was new uh, again this year to AARP, and I've had to confront my own ageism, and I think it's something that we all need to do. Um, I know I've said, oh, I just want a young, energetic, I know I've said that over the course of my career. Um, and I think really recognizing the incredible value um, of older adults, their ability to contribute, and really not just 
having it be okay that they're in your workplace, but really intentionally seeking them out and making it possible for them to, to rejoin the workforce. We need that as a society. Great. Well, on that note, yes. Thank you, Claire, for shining a light on this issue. And thank you all for joining us. And for those of you online, if you want to add your voice to the caregiving or to the Global Women's Summit conversation, please use the hashtag postlive. My name is Lana Wong. Thank you again for joining us. And can I just say, it's so nice to be in this room full of effervescent, powerful <laughs> women. So I tell you, a few men too, but um, yeah. Thank you all for being here. And now. Back to Washington Post Live. All right, good afternoon. I'm Libby Casey, senior news anchor here at the Washington Post, and I'm joined here at this table with this deck of cards <laughs> by Jenny Just, co-founder of Peak Six Investments and co-founder with her daughter of Poker Power. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, Jenny's also one of the 23 self-made women billionaires in the United States to give you a sense of her power and her perspective. I want to welcome you to the Global Women's Summit, and I, I can't wait to hear you talk about your insights on poker and leadership. But first, I, I want to I poll the room. How many of you play poker? A couple of hands. Not good. How many couple. of you are good at playing poker? <laughs> of course. Yes, I saw one little okay. leg. I, I did not, see, okay, <laughs> for those of you who are watching online, we had some hands for playing poker. When we asked if you're good at it, there were a lot of these. Yeah. Jenny, does that make sense to you? Does that, oh, does that uh, read in line with what you know? Uh, absolutely. Every week we are talking to women. We have a team that's out there talking to women and that is the response. But it's also my response in 2019 until this whole thing started, so. Yeah, I wanna hear about that in a moment. But, but first, you, know, you weren't really part of the public sphere. You weren't very um, um, in the public limelight until only the last couple of years. And I understand that was intentional. Why? So, in, interesting. Um, I think for, most, for the most part, I would say I have four companies, I have four kids, I can't do anything else. So my, my co-founder would take on any outside role. I was the inside person. In reality, when I look back, was it a risk I wasn't willing to take? Maybe, probably, um, but I also knew as time went by that if I was going to be out there, because of the success I've had, I wanted to give something tangible back to the people who were gonna listen. And I didn't have anything, so, until poker. How did you discover poker? So, <laughs> it's a funny story. Um, my husband was at a tennis match with my daughter. Uh, my daughter's now 18, but she was 14 at the time. And she's a very good athlete and wasn't winning. So, of course, he was a college athlete, frustrated, comes home, and starts, you know, in my face about what could have been happening differently, because he he's not gonna tell her, he's gonna tell me. <laughs> and uh, I just rolled my eyes. And, um, but there was uh, two important things they said. One was, uh, she doesn't realize that she's playing against somebody, that she's not hitting against a wall or hitting with her teacher. And then the second thing he said was, she needs to learn to play poker. And who would have guessed 
that one moment would change everything. Now at the time, I was like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And, <laughs> but like two weeks later, I was like, should I teach my 14-year-old daughter to play poker? Mm -hmm. And not only was it, I wasn't quite sure why I would do that, but I would never have said that about my sons. So we have three sons as well. And that really bothered me, because that should not be the case, whatever it is. And so we did an experiment. I asked her friends' moms. I said, let's do an experiment, see if this is somehow beneficial. And there were 10 girls. The moms all wanted to join, 10 moms. And I will tell you, from lesson one to lesson four, my new word, metamorphosis, that happened. Like, I would not be sitting here today if it wasn't that transformative. And what we saw in the girls was extraordinary confidence, like I had never seen. Like, you're literally one hour, two hours, three hours, and that fourth hour, in the beginning, they were whispering to each other about what to do. If somebody lost their chips, you can have my chips. Right, right, right. Uh, to the fourth lesson, sitting up, t up tall, peeking at their cards, and nobody was going to take those chips. I'm like, that, just the physical demonstration was so powerful to me. I was like, what is going on here? There is something here. At the time, it wasn't about me being a public person or not being a public person. I'm just like, what just happened? We need more of that. That was fall now, at this point, fall of 2019. And so we started with, I think we had like 17 clubs, three states, going into COVID. And now? Well, we, we died right after that because I thought the most important thing was being at the table. Yeah, yeah. As it turns out, that wasn't the whole story. So as we realized COVID was going to continue on, we figured out how to do Zoom and an app. And under Peak Six, the umbrella Peak Six, several companies, about 2,000 people, the women started to say, well, if it's, because we asked for their daughters and their nieces and their sisters, and they said, well, if it's so good for them, why aren't we learning? So we started to teach them. And then Morningstar, another uh, large fintech company, said, can we learn? And 30, 60, 90 women international, opening Women's International Month, Fast forward to today, we are in 40 countries. We are on a mission to teach a million girls, women this game. We are teaching at companies, which is really quite interesting. We just hit our 230th company. Think the biggest tech firms in the world, the banks, the biggest law firms, of course, all the, the large women's organizations. Hoping, while they have really gravitated towards this idea of practicing strategy, practicing taking risks, better understanding capital allocation. Those bigger concepts, the young girls aren't going to get. But if they get it, they play. The girls see them playing. They start teaching, like your seven-year-old daughter has learned. Right? It will come full circle for us. So I, I was wondering, what did your husband mean when he said that your daughter wasn't playing against a wall? She was playing against other players. Was it that was the idea for poker that she could think about the odds, think about the strategy of the other person, mm -hmm. sort of you know be able to pivot and and yep. read how they were playing? So I talk about the 
the, she brought something to the game. My daughter brought something to the game. As you start to play, you start to feel out what their strengths and weaknesses are. Now, based on that, what do I have to do? And by the way, that person might pivot. Another card might come out. Now how are they playing? So we have to constantly rethink the strategy or our approach to the game um, while we're in the game. That's the beauty of poker. So I confessed to Jenny before this, I did not know how to play poker mm -hmm. as of a few months ago. I think I played once in high school and I just ate all the M&Ms, which were our chips, which right, was right, not right. a long-term yes. strategy. <laughs> um, but I had it as, it's on my bucket list. It's always been on my bucket list. Mm -hmm. And so once I learned about you and your company, and the fact that we were talking, yes. I had been doing my homework, and it was my seven-year-old daughter who started teaching me lessons because she has a card shark aunt who's yeah. been teaching her. That's and um, so, you know, I, I, I'm curious to see though as she gets older, if that confidence that a really young child has change in the teenage years. Um, and we can talk more about your daughter in a moment, but. Yep. Um, I, I want to talk about the numbers of women who actually play poker because it's less than 10% of poker players that are women. 96% mm -hmm. um, of professional poker players are men. And then when we take it into your world, your work world, options traders, it's you know, a sl single digits right, of single option digits. traders are women. Yes. How do you see those two as connected? So ironically, so we have a lot of poker players. The firm I started 26 years ago, um, Peak, Six. Peak Six, is an options trading firm initially. Since that time, it has grown into many other things. But we have many men and many poker players. And my thought about that was it was a complete waste of time, and I didn't want anything to do with it. We do, turn we do tournaments every year, and we send somebody, you know, to the WSOP, that's how much it's ingrained in there. But as we start, we, we figured out after a few years, many years, many fails, how to get more women in. We have more women actually allocating capital at Peak Six. I can fairly say for certain than any other trading firm in the United States. I don't know about the world. Um, so we're in the low 30s percent, women actually making the decision around money. So one thing we did seven years ago, we started a program called the Women's Trading Experience. And I thought, we can't fail, because this was our third effort at trying to get women in. And one thing we did was stick poker in there, because our primary educator is an excellent poker player. And I just wanted the women to be learning something all day long, right? Just to be engaged and curious. Poker was kind of a filler. Hmm. And it turns out that it wasn't a filler after all that time. I just didn't know it. Again, I didn't know what was happening. So the opportunity is, I love this when people you know, kind of figure it out. It's like right under our nose. It's been there this whole time. It's super easy to pick up a deck of cards and play with some pretzels or some M&Ms. You don't, you know, a lot of men will like to say you have to play for money to really play. I mean, women, in regards to these specific things, I find we are way down the curve. We do not need to be playing for money to really understand the game, but we need reps. I think it'd be safer if it wasn't M&Ms in my case, but yes, yes chips would, chips, chips would, chips would, would isn't the yeah. chips would totally work. Yeah. Um, let's talk poker. Okay. Okay, so we are going to talk through some poker hands, um, and you can talk to us about why they're significant and how you would play them. So let's start with hand one, okay? okay? Here we go, here's our first hand. We've got 
8-9, suited, and we call those suited connectors. Suited connectors, there we go. So two cards that are next to each other that are the same suit. Not obvious when you start to play poker. So when you start to play poker, you're given two cards, private whole cards, and everybody else is given theirs. They've kept them private too. Now you have to decide if you're going to play. The really interesting thing about a suited connector is there's, most of you do likely know that there's a whole bunch of hand rankings and they go in sort of an order. High card is at the bottom, a royal flush is at the top. So having two cards next to each other could potentially get me a straight when the other five cards come out. But also having two of the same suit, I might have the opportunity for a flush. So I have two ways to win. I have higher percentage chance of winning. And when we get these cards, um, you know, everybody's looking for a pair of aces, right, out of the gate. That's what they're really looking for. These are really opportunistic cards. Of course, aces win a high majority of the time. But suited connectors are, all, are also really interesting. But in work and in life, the way I like to think about this, it's like a plan A and a plan B wrapped up in a package all together. I literally use this example with a young woman. She's a senior. Um, running a department for us, and we are putting a bunch of chips, a bunch of money, into a piece of technology that we're building. And it's adjacent to another piece of technology. And I said to her, so when we build this, it's going to take us time, and it's going to take us money. What if the customer ends up changing their mind? What if we cannot sell to the customer? How do I use all that time and energy on that tech and connect it to what I already have here. What is my plan B? Um, and all of a sudden, she started to think about it differently, right? So I, I take a 360-degree view of my opportunity, and I don't forget to think about how I might lose or how I give myself an extra way to win. That's why I like suited connectors. So we talked about suited connectors. She's learning poker with us. Let's talk about another hand. Okay, great. All right, here we've got an ace and a low card of a different suit. Yep. Um, these are tricky. These are tricky. This is where, this is where you think, and, and most of our women will be like, I want to play this right away. There's an ace. Of course I would want to have an ace. But an ace with a low card is not going to win that often. It's deceiving. It's potentially too good to be true. Uh, I like to think right now in sort of since rates have been going up since April of last year, what were we thinking about our hand, our personal hand, our business hand? Were we really an ace six offsuit? Things were a little bit too good to be true. Valuations were a little bit too high. Everybody had enough cash, but all of a sudden they didn't when the Fed started raising rates and everybody started pulling back and valuations dropped 40 to 60%. So are we paying attention to those moments when I'm feeling super confident because I have an ace, but what is my, what is my second card, my kicker? This, you can think about these on a very you know, bottoms up level or you can think about them on a top down level. 
we play around with that at work a lot. So this has been a really interesting framework, not just for, for the women at Peak Six, but for the men and women and the senior leadership team to say, what cards do you think we have? And then when you get a little bit more advanced, you start to say, well, what position am, am I in at the table? I'm, am I in the dealer position, right, the best seat? Or I'm in the cutoff position? Different positions have different strengths. And then, by the way, how many chips do I have? Because there's, there's going to be a time when I play a six offsuit. I want to squeeze in yep. one more Great. hand, but we have to make this kind of quick. Okay. I've got two kings. We love them. We love them. Nothing better. But do I win all the time, high percentage of the time, similar to aces, but I can lose. So what do I do when I have kings? I'm going to push in. I'm going to re-raise. I might three bet. Depends on the story at the table. Depends on who I'm playing. Depends on my chip stack and where I'm sitting. But I'm going to double down. And one of the interesting things, most interesting things we find, and we're teaching so many senior women, like this room would be, is how tentative they are when we say, okay, you're gonna bet three times a big blind. They're like, wait, how about just a couple of chips? Every time, every time. So you get the practice, the feeling of what it means to really, you don't have to push all the chips, but many more chips than you thought you naturally would. I have to ask about gambling addiction mm -hmm. and sort of what, how you frame that and talk about that and think about that. Because of course there's a dark side to yeah. things like poker and gambling. Yeah. Yes. So. First of all, we think about poker, it's a proven game of skill, it's a mind sport like chess, but of course it has all kinds of stereotypical um, and potentially negative consequences. So our goal is to, and what we've done as, as a, a trading firm for many years, and so, which is why I like you know, our team talking about it, we're really good at healthy risk taking. And that's where we focus in our curriculum. So our curriculum is, is 12 lessons long, then there's an extra six, and then private lessons that you can take virtually or you can um, do in person. We do events all around the country. We're doing eight to 10 of them a week. But that's where all the education comes in. And I'm really proud of our team for teaching healthy risk-taking. Of course, there's gonna be things that go off the rails. I would expect that to happen. That is life. Some people will drive outside the speed limit to extremes. But um, our goal is to get you to the table, first of all, playing and confident at the table in a safe environment with other women in your community, networking, which is something we didn't expect from all of it, and then, of course, being able to take that back and use it in your daily and your work life. Jenny, in one sentence, what's the biggest le lesson you want women to take away from poker? The, the most important thing between you and where you want to be is money. And this poker table is a representation of the money table. So you have the opportunity to practice getting comfortable in money and taking risks through this game. Jenny Just, it went by so fast yes. with Poker Power, Peak Six Investments. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.